Our scripture today is first found in John 12, verses 27 through 28. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. In James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith precedes steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Yeah. Let me just take a moment and go ahead and pray for us as we take a look at some of what God's word has to say about trials and uh, suffering that we go through. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, um, we come to you now into your presence, not because we're deserving, not because we've earned our way, not because we can even recommend anything of us to you, but because Jesus is our recommendation, because he is our peace. He himself provided a way to come into your presence boldly, yet humbly, uh, with confidence we can approach your throne together. And so we do now. We need your presence. We need your help as we read and as we pray through and as we think about your word together. We confess that we need you. We need you so much. And so we ask that you would reveal more of your glory and your greatness and your love to us as we ponder your word anew this morning. Be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have uh, started a new series, How to Live Right When life, Your Life Goes Wrong. And uh, we're taking a look at what the gospel means to suffering and trials and the things that sort of weigh down and put pressure on your life. And um, last week we've taken a look at two very distinct things that are meant to help us approach our trials and our troubles with the gospel. One is that Jesus makes every other asset that we might have look like a liability. And that's one of the things that has to happen when we approach suffering is uh, through the lens of the gospel is that Jesus becomes our sole asset. And then also that he's not come to leave us where we are. He's come to make us like him and he's bringing us to a new heavens, a new earth, uh, a city of God where there, the nations will bring in their glory. There's, uh, there's art and culture there. There's an, it's an urban center. God himself is there and we can worship in an unhindered way with every nation, tongue, and tribe. And so it's a little different than the concept that most people have locked in on, especially for uh, several centuries now where heaven is what people have locked in on, and that's an important part of our faith. But uh, as I mentioned last week, one of, the, uh, one of my theology professors called that affectionately a bus stop. It's not the destination. It's a place where we, we rest until the destination is provided for us. We're headed towards an urban setting in the new heavens and new earth. Those two things, that makes a difference makes a difference to the way that we face suffering, the way that we intercede with one another in life in the city. And it also, um, it gives us a great amount of hope when we approach suffering, when we're able to have Jesus as our value, the one in whom we have our identity and know that he's bringing us somewhere. So those are some of the things that we covered. We're going to look at part two of our series today and deal with troubles and trials. And one of the things I want us to see, the main thing I want us to see is our troubles and trials 
uh, are what God uses like a lathe to shape us spiritually. Our troubles and trials are what God uses to shape us spiritually. And so we're just going to briefly look at two things. We're going to look at, in verses 27 and 28 of John 12, we'll look at the idea of using problem emotions, problem emotions to align with God's purposes. Okay? And then in James, verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1, we're going to look at using the problems themselves as an opportunity to grow closer to God. Okay? So the first thing in John, problem emotions to align with God's purposes. And then in James, we're going to look at problems themselves as an opportunity to grow closer to God. And just quickly, let's look at these things. Why does God use our troubles and trials like a lathe to shape our heart? And in verse 27 and 28, what we see here uh, from our Lord, from, from the one whom we say we follow, from the one whom, from whom we take our identity. What we see is he's facing the most massive trial, trouble, tribulation that anyone's going to face and anyone has ever faced. It's cosmic undoing, separation from God and his wrath that he's, he's looking at when he says these things. Now, one of the things that, that you've got to realize when you face trouble, some, some Christians have missed grace in their life. They've missed grace. They've missed the point of grace. And so some Christians will take trials and they'll look at it as a way to live up. You know, I've got to keep the veneer on. Can't let everybody know that anything's wrong, that, that I'm suffering or that I'm broken or that I'm hurting or that I, I, like I really messed this up or I don't know. Like there are different ways under trial, under stress of pressure of things going wrong that you can act. And a lot of, a lot of Christians will miss grace and miss the message to be vulnerable in who you are and say, no, I've got to keep an an external veneer going. I heard a, um, Emory and I lived in Nashville for a couple years, and there's a a beautiful um, quaintness to the culture where it's very welcoming and it's very civil and cordial, but there's also a veneer that prevents people often from being exposing real problems and things kind of bubble up and explode in lives and, and we don't, you know, in that, in that culture we found that it was tough to deal with. And there was, I heard a country song on the radio this week where there was a woman singing about um, how her, her, her view of life, her engaging in the problems of life in a bad breakup in particular, it was not from her mother's generation. It wasn't the, her mother's generation was softer, but her way to, to engage in that breakup was like to get matches and go to the house and burn it down. Like just, you know, she was not going to put on this veneer of, hey, this hurts. Well, my point here is that look at Jesus, right? Now is my soul troubled. There's no veneer. There's no veneer. He's distressed and he's saying it. And it's important and he's with people. He's with people, and he's saying it. So there's no veneer. But the other thing is to, is, is to act like, one, you know, one thing, one contrast to the way Jesus is acting here is to act like there's no trouble, but there is. And the other way to contrast it is just to be undone by the trouble. And you don't see that here, and it's striking, because why? He's aligned with a different purpose. He says, verse 27, for this purpose... I've come to this hour, verse 28, Father, glorify your name. What's his purpose? To glorify God, right? Now, I'm going to stop for a second because we're going to talk a lot about uh, what the gospel means to us as we engage problem. We're going to zoom in and focus in on 
the way that our role plays into grace, right? It plays into the grace that we've given and flows out of the grace that we've been given in life under hard circumstances. I'm not in any way setting aside grace. So I want you to know, as you look at Jesus here, if you believe the good news of the gospel, you're in what Christ has done here. When he does this unbelievable thing, he's under the most intense pressure of his life. And he says, I am so stressed. I can't believe that I have to face this. But Father, not my will. Your will be done. Your name be glorified. When he says that, did you know those actions are given to you when you believe in his work on your behalf? When the Father sees you, he sees Jesus' actions here. It's part of the wonder of the gospel that you are not left on your own to stand before God. You have a representative, and he's done it really well. He's done it perfectly, and you're in him. So when we go on to how to live flowing out of the gospel, don't hear me saying anything about us in and of ourselves, in our own context, in our own strength. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about responding to the grace that we've been given. So let's hear it that way as we move forward. Don't make a mistake. Don't mishear me. Okay? So let's contrast Jesus here then with us. Because one of the things that God uses in our problems is to show us how we get misaligned with other purposes than God's purpose for our life. How the pressures of life can actually show what our purposes that we're living for are. And, and that's important because then we can turn from those wrong purposes and we can turn back to God as being our sole purpose, glorifying him as being our sole purpose. So one of the things I wanted to talk about was that we all live in relation to values. We all live in relation to values that we believe make life worth living, right? We all live in relation to those values. A value is anything good in creation, anything good in creation, any idea, any relation, any object, any person in which you have an interest from which you derive your significance. And guess what? These values, they compete. They compete. You've seen this in your own life. You've seen this uh, in different ways. In time what happens is you're prone to choose a center of value by which other values are judged. And that value that you've chosen comes to exercise power or preeminence over the other values. Simple example, uh, you know, if you're, sometimes if you're young, you want to be a baseball player or maybe a, a ballerina. And those are very big desires in your heart. You're growing up with them and you're oriented to them. And you, that, that value is ordering all other values in your life as you're going into into, uh, as you're growing up, right? And then as you graduate college, you get a sense of, well, I've got to do well in my career or I won't have the security that I need to retire or to do the other things that I want. And so what happened to baseball player and ballerina? There's a very few of us who get to do those things, but the rest of us have moved on. There's some other sort of ordering value that has reordered the baseball or the ballerina value. Right? In the same way, you meet somebody special, and uh, after you know, your career is going, you meet somebody special, and you, you fall in love. And you want children, and you begin to think about family, and family becomes a very important value, and it begins to reorder the other kinds of things. You can see how that happens. Those kinds of things have happened in your own life. You're not the same person now as you were a year ago even, or you know, when you were a kid. 
So when something good from creation, a value, something good from creation has been elevated to being central to who you are and why you feel you have meaning, you've chosen in that value a God. God's created you to worship, and you're worshiping, but you're doing it wrongly. You're frustrating the purpose, right? You're misaligning the purpose. You're, you're showing your own purpose in those things. To worship, uh, you have a God when you have a finite value, uh, and a finite value or a limited value is something that you view as that which out which you cannot receive life joyfully. Something that without which you cannot receive life joyfully. So what is that for you? What is the thing that when under threat you go, ooh, I can't be joyful if that's taken away? What is that thing for you? Now to be worshipped as a god, something must be sufficiently good. Were my daughter not a sufficient joy of wonder and delight in my life, it would not be a temptation for me to inordinately uh, love her and want the best for her and live through that, right? If she, were, if she were not my daughter and she were not so desirable in my heart as a father and to nurture her and to nourish her and to see her grow up well and to want the best for her, right, then it wouldn't be a temptation to... Um, to, be, to make that so important and her well-being and her flourishing so important that I would be undone if that were not to happen. You see? So it gets, it gets fairly intense. And let me, let's go through a couple of uh, examples to reveal the different purposes in our lives other than the one that Jesus gave his life for and refers to in verses 27 and 28. And this is where I want you to think about using your problem emotions to align with God's purposes. Remember, we said when the the stress is on, the trials are on, it reveals how your purposes are misaligned from glorifying God's name. So one of the things we'll look at is anxiety. Anxiety. You know, when you worship a created value as a God, that's called idolatry. So anxiety is an idolatry dealing with the future. Dealing with the future. One of the definitions that I like is frustrated passion for omnipotence. I've told you that before. Anxiety becomes neurotically intensified to the degree that I have idolized a limited value, a finite value. Right? So suppose my God is sex. Or suppose my God is physical health. Or suppose my God is the Republican Party. If I experience any of these under genuine threat, then I feel shaken to the depths. You see how that works? Think about guilt and bitterness, which is not idolatry and the future, but idolatry and the past. Guilt becomes neurotically intensified to the degree that I've idolized finite values. Suppose that I value my ability to teach and communicate clearly. Suppose I value that, and if that is my center, and that gives me value, and I fail in teaching well or communicating clearly, what happens? I'm stricken with a neurotic guilt. Bitterness becomes neurotically intensified when someone or something stands between me and something that is my value. I become embittered towards that, whatever's standing in the way, whoever's standing in the way. Boredom and emptiness. So not idolatry and the future or idolatry in the past, but idolatry in the present. 
To be bored is to feel empty. Boredom, think about this definition for a second. It's one of the best ones I've heard. Boredom is the anticipatory form of being dead. To the extent which limited values are exalted to be central and then lost, boredom becomes pathological and compulsive. And the more mild forms of this are disappointment, disillusionment, cynicism, right? We see this all the time. Last night, uh, we were watching a movie. Comfort's a big, one of the things that I have to have the purposes of God reorder. So if my purpose is comfort and I'm watching a movie, we've had this, we actually were, it wasn't pretty at the moment, but we were laughing after, after, afterwards, which is that in our home, we have this dynamic of, I'm an introvert. Every other member of my family is an extrovert. So there's constant processing out loud. Now, if I come with a purpose to watching a movie together with my family is, I would like to zone out right now and be comfortable and not have to think about any kind of thing that I've got, weight or responsibility that I've got on. And you know, what happens in my living room when we watch a family together, when watch a movie together with a family? Hey, what's happening now? And why is he doing that? And what, hey, Dad, what's going on there? And you know, so it's, it's completely frustrating to my agenda of what? Zoning out and, and getting some comfort, right? And, you know, sad, I'm not proud of this, but I was grumpy. I was grumpy with my family so much that they called me out on it in a very strong way. So you, you're too grumpy. My purpose was not glorifying God. My purpose was to get comfort for myself. You see? So this works for big trials. It works for little trials. Whether you've lost someone you loved in an untimely way, or whether you're trying to watch a movie and just zone out for a little while, we can use those moments as chances to see how our purposes need to be realigned to God's purpose. And remember I said, we're in Jesus. You shouldn't feel the weight of guilt and shame because he did die for you. But you should be humble in your approach to realign your purposes. And don't don't think that you're exempt from this because Jesus had to die for you. He had to face what he was facing in verses 27 and 28 so that he could remake you. All right, so that's the first section. The second section we'll look at is how does God use our troubles and trials like a lathe to shape our heart? And what we see here in James, verses 2 through 4, is an opportunity to grow closer to God. One of the things we see in verses, uh, verse 4 in particular, look at your bulletin there. Verse 3, we see the word steadfast. Verse 4, we see steadfastness, right? What's he talking about? What's James talking about? And one of the things that you have to realize is that there's character. There's character that comes from knowing God, right? And we're, we're talking about letting our trials be indicators of that which we have to um, let go of and that which we have to take up more of in order to grow closer to God. Okay, And so character is one of the things that's very clear in Scripture. We're uh, reading, a compa- the home meeting leaders are reading a companion book by a, a local Philly counselor named Leslie Vernick. And it's the title of the same name that we have as our series here, How to Live Right When Things Are Going Wrong in Your Life. And she makes a great point. She says, look, when you're in the middle of circumstance, right, you're in the middle of circumstance. You're looking at God through those circumstances. And you're trying to understand his will for you through those circumstances. If they go right, you think you're in line with God's will. If they go wrong, you think you're out of line with God's will. 
okay? She makes the point, wait a minute. That's not a very helpful way to approach God through the lens of your circumstances, especially when you're dealing with troubles and trials. She says, for example, God is very clear in his will, his revealed will to you, and she lists pages. She has several pages where she lists at least four uh, verses you can go up and look about each of these things. God is very clear in his will for you and who you are to be. Who you are to be. What is your identity? What defines your being? God is very clear. Some of the things that scripture says should flow forth from the fact that Jesus has loved us in the gospel are things like patience and being joyful and hopeful and being humble and forgiving, merciful, kind, filled with the spirit, obedient, faithful, trusting, loving, holy, self-controlled, pure, gentle, imitators of God, like Jesus. What was striking is that she has an overwhelming amount of specific teaching from Scripture that we're to be those things. Now, admittedly, last night when I was too grumpy with the movie, not getting to hear the movie, was I patient? No. Was I kind? Was I loving? Was I demonstrating fruit of the Spirit? But what happens? What happens when we're under a pressure that we won't want to be under? Mine was very basic. I wasn't getting to watch the movie without interruption. And so my comfort was disrupted, right? And what ends up happening functionally for us is that we use that interruption as an excuse not to bear fruit of the Spirit, right? And then we say, oh, but I'm not sure what God wants (laughs) in this moment. We know exactly what he wants in clear and abundant ways. He wants his fruit to be manifest in our lives. He wants our character to be made like his. He wants us to show his glory, his love, his peace, his comfort. But we can only do that if we're letting his spirit realign our purposes, um, retool the, the tools that we even have in our own lives for his purposes. But So it's not just being, but she, she goes on to point out that God is abundantly clear about what we're to do. Abundantly clear about what we're to do. And she goes on and she lists several things. We're to love him with all our heart, right? We're to obey him. We're to trust him. We're to pray. We're to believe. We're to make every effort to keep unity with one another. We're to submit to one another. We're to respect those in authority. We're to glorify God with our lives. We're to love one another. We're to devote ourselves to doing good, to give to those in need, to forgive those who sin against us, to witness to others, to overcome evil with good, to love our enemies, to give thanks. When I didn't get to watch the movie, I wasn't giving thanks. Is it, is it unclear what God wants? All right, now let me step it up a little bit. What about a job promotion? that you've been wanting and that you deserve and that you've been working hard for? Is it unclear of what God wants of you in the midst of that? Is it unclear of who he wants you to be? Is it unclear of what he wants you to do? Leslie Vernick's point, and I think is right, and I think James's point here, that's how he can say, count it all joy. Why? Because steadfastness, the relationship to steadfastness. What we see is Jesus' steadfastness for us. 
he stood in, verses 27 to 28. He, did, he was not turned from God's purposes. He did it on our behalf. And so that our relationship to pressures, to trials, to persecutions begin to grow out of that instead of out of what we want and our purposes and our desires. And to the extent that it does so, when our desires or purposes are frustrated, we're no longer undone by them or we're undone by them less and less. Where we have this balance that starts to grow in our lives, the good things of the, of the world become okay, okay, and the bad things of the world that happen become okay, but they're not the things that you grab onto to make who you are. That's Jesus. When the Bible talks about steadfastness, it talks about God's character expressing his love, his steadfast love, his covenantal love, the love that cannot be shaken. We studied this in Romans, that nothing in heaven and earth can separate you from his love. Why? Because he secured it, and you don't have to. And you can stop looking in the things, in the areas, in, in the different kinds of relationships that you have for the things you think you need to be whole and to bear fruit of the Spirit and to do what he asks you to do. If you only do what he, he asks you to do when things are going right for you, according to your agenda, you're not getting the gospel. You're not getting who Jesus is. God is too small for you. He's become an assistant to help you with your agenda. He's much bigger than that. I'm not saying that God doesn't want happiness in your life or flourishing in your life, but often what he defines as those things is very different than what you define as those things. So let him challenge you. Let him challenge you. What ends up happening is that we look through the lens of our circumstances and view him and... Let's say, you know, like I want, I want to be married, right? And I'm looking through the lens of my circumstances and I'm not married. And so, God, what do you want from me? It's not clear. It is clear. But you've got to understand that our tendency is to take our circumstances and just use those to go to God through. I'm not saying we can't do that. I'm not saying the Bible says we can't do that. But there's much more of God that we can learn that's always true. Whether you're married or not, whether you get the promotion or not, whether you have the things that you want, whether I can be comfortable watching a movie in silence or not, God is always good. All the time. All the time. And if you are not relating to what all of the beautiful clarity that he brings to your life through his word for who you're to be and what you're to do in light of who Jesus was, and you're only going to him over here through just the lens of your circumstances, you are living an impoverished life. You are missing the power and transformation of grace in your life. And he doesn't want that for you. He loves you too much to leave you as you are. And he's going to go about changing you, making you like him. And that's part and parcel of what it means to put your trust in him. It means to entrust him with the very purposes of your life, your very being, your very identity, the very things that you set your hands to day to day. You have a wealth and abundance of things that you can engage with, not only for who you are, but how you handle the pressures that are brought out in life. It's not always clear how to face circumstances with wisdom. You remember the, the, the basic definition that I think is a helpful biblical definition for wisdom is putting the knowledge that God gives us to good use. Putting knowledge to good, good use. And so... You might pick up and you might move your family for a job somewhere. And then uh, two months after you move there, maybe the, the company folds. 
okay, I did a lot of praying and I submitted this whole thing to God and I went there and now, now there's no company. God, wasn't I following your will here? Wasn't I trying to do what you want me to do? Yes and no, but you understand that the idea was that that is the wisdom part of trying to understand God. And, and there's a lot to that, and there are helpful means to do that. The idea is that you understand what, what's God's purpose, what's his motive, what's his standard for approaching this situation, and try to think through that in your own life, because often you have competing purposes, motives, and standards for entering into any particular decision you have to make. But that's one set. God, we can know God through decision-making, but the main way that we know him is over here, where he's given us, he's given us a sense of who we are, He's given us a sense of what we're to do. And the beauty is that salt and light happen in our lives, in the tasteless places, in the dark places, through his character, his spirit working through us in those moments of pressure, of uncertainty, of undecidedness. Because we can show that we don't live for just our circumstances, but we live for one greater than that. And he's ordering all of those things for the benefit of those whom he loves. Right? I think that's why James can say, count it as joy. Why? Because this is testing your faith. Verse 3, this is testing your faith. You've got to test your faith. And when you do that, it produces steadfastness in you. Your own steadfastness? No. Not at all. I, I, I told you about the... Um, Hosea 10.12 is an amazing place in the, in the prophet... Hosea, where it's sort of a central point, and Hosea's pointing out how unfaithful God's people were. Really unfaithful, adulterous, right? And he actually goes to tell them to marry a prostitute and have babies, and the, the prostitute will be unfaithful to her. And it's just a, a powerful image. And right there in the center of it all, God calls to his people. And it's a beautiful verse, and I memorized it in the NIV, so this is the way I'll give it to you. It says, Sow for yourselves steadfast love. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. That's steadfast love, right? Break up your unplowed ground for it's time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness upon you. When I first read that as a younger Christian, I looked at that and I said, sow for yourselves righteousness. Okay, I've got a do and be. I went right to those lists, right? I've got a do and be. But I knew that sowing and reaping are connected agriculturally, Right? And he said, reap the fruit of unfailing love. And I was stopped in my tracks because I knew that my love fails all the time. So if I'm sowing my own love that fails, how can I get, how can I reap unfailing love, right? If I'm sowing my own righteousness, how can I reap unfailing love? And so the, the Holy Spirit began to open up the verse and I realized, Paul says that there's a righteousness from God that's been revealed in the gospel from first to last. And if I sow that into these unbroken areas of my life, now I'm jumping right to application. There's a whole bunch of contextual stuff we need to know about that verse, so don't just skip over that for now. We can talk about it later if you want. But the idea is that there are things, there are unbroken, unplowed ground in my life, just like these other areas that we're talking about, where my purposes aren't aligned, Right? or where I'm looking at God through the lens of my circumstances rather than through the clear means that he's given me and I'm failing to see him for who he is. And so there are areas, those areas, unplowed ground, Hosea says, right? 
And I can break that up and I can let him shout, seek God until he showers his righteousness in there. What righteousness? The righteousness of Jesus. You can talk to me offline about how that passage gets to Jesus, gets to me. And I want to do that because there are beautiful ways. But for now, just, just ex- listen with me, right? Testing your faith produces steadfastness. In other words, the more you test these areas that are not based on Jesus' work for you, the more that God gives you a chance to uproot them and to plant his righteousness down, to plant his character down, his identity down, and live out of that and flourish out of that. There's a great example that Leslie Vernick gives in her book about, she was saying, in gardening, you want to love your plants and you want to water them and make sure they're doing okay. But the people that she was learning gardening from were telling her that if you overwater your plants, it keeps the roots shallow and they get diseased and they'll die. But if you keep the surface level fairly dry and you water them in such a way that uh, they can get their nourishment and water from deeper down, it forces them to put their roots deeper down. You see the illustration for trials and trouble in our life? The Lord uses those to expose the things we've been living for and to draw us closer to him. And let me tell you, when you've experienced suffering and you're under the weight of suffering, there's no better thing, there's no better freedom to have and to know and to use than to be able to turn to God in those moments. Nothing can prevent you from doing that. You can go to him, you can invite him in to the weight of what you're holding and he'll be there. He loves you and he wants to walk with you in those things and he's using those things and he calls you to use those very things as a means by which you can grow closer to him. Right? So James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I often hear younger Christians misquote, the Lord wants to give me the desires of my heart. If you read the passage that actually comes from, what's in view is the Lord is giving more of himself. Not the things he brings, not the things that a person wants, but he's giving more of himself. And in Hebrew poetry, the desires of my heart are the Lord himself. Use your troubles and trials to draw near to God because he drew near to you in Jesus. He gave everything so that you could do this with freedom, with dignity, with boldness, and yet with humility all combined. It's the only place in the world that all of those things combine into one. And you can do them because Jesus has lived his life for you and died his death for you so that you could live now in a different way. Your being doesn't rely on your circumstances. Your doing doesn't rely on your circumstances. It's informed by who God is and what he's done for you always. And nothing can separate you from that. And that makes all the difference when the weight of trial is on. No matter how big, no matter how small, his light begins to show through. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, be with us now as we continue to worship you. Thank you for being able to worship you together. Uh, in spirit and in truth, in grace and in peace. We thank you for the fact that we can come now to the table together as members of your family. You have called us friends, Lord. You have um, made such a powerful way, such a gracious way for us. Let us come to you now with joy and thanksgiving. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.